officially turned around, guys. We are back, baby. We are fucking back. We are back. Yeah. Classic. We are back. That's we right. are back. We back, back again. The sack is back. So hit that ish. Hello. Welcome back. To Carson Sack Podcast, where we talk balls. I've been gone for a little bit. I'll be honest with you, I had a lot going on. I had school, I had some personal stuff going on. And just to get this right out there, the amount of people that I see and they tell me how much they enjoy the podcast, and then question, hey, why haven't you been putting stuff out, really gets to me. This is what I want to do with my life, so... I should be more committed to getting podcasts out, even though I'm a big football guy. Obviously, football season has been done, but there's so many other sports to talk about, and I, I'm going to try and do better to get podcasts out there covering such a wide variety of topics that even without football, it's still going to be a good show. We have a lot to talk about in this episode of The Sack. We have the NFL free agency, the NFL draft coming up. We have an entire NCAA basketball tournament to talk about. Maybe how I feel about the whole tournament itself. We have the NBA playoffs coming in hot and heavy here starting up pretty soon. And then the MLB opening day is just right around the corner for America's pastime. So strap in. Also going to talk maybe a little bit of golf. Not a lot. Going to save that maybe for the next episode. Give a whole Masters breakdown and preview of that. But that's 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 down the line. That's the combo. We are going to talk a little golf in this episode as well. So I tried and did recorded a uh, preview of the NCAA tournament. But stuff on my end, technical issues, could not get that uploaded. And I get... Most of the tournament has happened already, but it is the Final Four, and there were some great matchups within the Elite Eight that needs to be talked about. And without further ado, the biggest one we would all probably have to agree on was the second-seeded Duke Blue Devils going up against the one-seeded Kansas Jayhawks. Kansas wins it 85-81 in overtime. Grayson Allen got a good look at the end of regulation. Didn't get it to fall, though, on a tough contested layup. Little... Little note right off the bat was near the end of the game, Grayson Allen, I don't know who he thought he was, just tried to do too much, run too many ISOs, wasn't going to get the calls necessarily for fouls down the stretch, driving and whatnot. So tried to do too much in his last game as a senior, but you liked the leadership, and he owned it after the in the press conference and afterwards. So at least it was that. Another big note on this game was Bill Self, Everything he did coaching-wise worked. It was He dictated how the style of play of the game happened. Um, if he made some changes, it worked out matchup-wise for him. He got Duke to play smaller, which Duke's size was obviously the bigger strength for them and thought to be maybe Kansas's downfall, but he got 
uh, Carter in foul trouble, and Duke and Krzyzewski didn't trust Bolden, which I think is crazy to me because he was such a highly touted recruit last year injuries plagued his freshman year was a good contributor all year for the Blue Devils this year but they just didn't trust him enough in this game which I said I don't get Bagley only had nine shots so they didn't even really get to execute and uh, use their size advantage on Kansas because of the foul trouble with Carter and then using a faster, slower lineup, caused Duke to change their lineup, and just matchup-wise, it didn't work. And then when Bagley would get the ball, only nine shots, as I said, but they would double-team him right off the bat and get the ball out of his hands. So Bill Self gets a lot of hate for not really achieving as much as he should, but in this game, coaching-wise, he outcoached Coach K by a lot, and it wasn't even close. Another big thing I want to talk about for Duke, and it's kind of looking ahead to next year, but I need to do it just because it's. I wrote this down and I wanted to talk about it. Duke's big man rotation was three guys between Bagley, Carter, and Bolden. Coach K did a good job in the first half rotating those guys because Carter got two fouls pretty quickly, and he did well. Also, maybe I would say the first eight... Mm, first eight minutes in the second half of rotating those guys and next year he's going to have three forwards that are in the top 10 of the ESPN recruiting that are going to be on his team so to answer people's questions that there might be with having Zion Williams and having RJ Baird and other players at the same position and how is he going to manage time how is he going to figure out rotations it's doable he's done it before obviously like I said it didn't work out all the way in his favor in this game, but Coach K can do it. So any of those questions that might be uh, coming up for next year for Duke, it just shouldn't really be a concern because Coach K will figure it out. And then the zone they've been running, it's perfect for three big men down low and two guys up on top if they end up doing um, having those three guys on the court at the same time. Transitioning now, I got in a bit of a discussion about zone defense with my dad and everything, and he doesn't agree with the whole zone defense type of mentality. You play man-to-man, one-on-one, everything like that. Jim Beheim, obviously the best zone in college basketball at Syracuse, has been for a while. Coach K kind of adapted it this year, made it his own style. They threw a lot of different zone looks at Kansas in this game. My big thing is I'm totally opposite of my dad on the whole zone subject. Use it. So many players and teams don't practice enough against zone, and they get frazzled and rattled, and they just don't do as well as they can and exploit one-on-one matchups as they can in man-on-man. It's so much easier to be exposed as a bad defender in one-on-one rather than zone, obviously. Offenses can use different matchups, faster guys, bigger guys on smaller, slower guys. Obviously, that's the thing. Another thing that isn't really thought of in zone, how many big men that it's thought of get them to the middle around the free throw line and let them facilitate and throw the ball around or take it to the basket. Not a lot of big men have that type of skill where they're good passers or they feel comfortable enough dribbling and driving. Some guys are just post-up guys, and they have good post moves, yes, but the fact is 
most big men in the game don't have the type of game where they're going to feel comfortable making such such big decisions as where to pass the ball, how to pass the ball, should I drive it, should I not, on every possession. Certain teams do have that. I thought Michigan State had that with Miles Bridges and Nick Ward. It didn't actually happen because Syracuse upset Michigan State in the tournament, but I'm all in a big proponent of zone defense because it gets teams uncomfortable. They don't have a lot of time to practice going up against zone. And even if they do in practice and it's not a team's main defense, it's going to be nowhere near as a as good as a competition would be when you're playing a Syracuse and when you ended up playing Duke this year who, like I said, Coach K adapted the zone and made it sort of his own thing too. And it worked well for the Blue Devils, just not at times, obviously, in the Kansas game. Another question that arose to me watching this Kansas-Duke game is Kansas back. A lot of people at the start of the year got on Kansas because they barely beat a young Kentucky team in the uh, – Champions Classic. Okay, that's fine. First game of the year, you don't know. First or second game of the year, you don't really know what you're getting with your team and your players, and it's hard. You've only practiced against each other. You get in a big game environment like that, it's difficult. Then they lose in uh, Fog Allen Fieldhouse. It's totally not like Kansas at all. That is one of the hardest, best atmospheres to play in in college basketball and probably in sports. They lose Arizona State at home. That's difficult. That's a bad loss. And it was thought to be a good loss because Arizona State jumped right up to the top of the um, rankings after that. But down the line, not a good loss at all. And people were questioning, is this the year that Kansas doesn't win the Big 12 at all? Is it type of that, that type of year for Bill Self? He's underachieved in the past. Is this the year where he really underachieves? Now, Devontae Graham and the rest of that team, Malik Newman, they all, Azabuki, they have all matured so well and come and learned how to play together, and I think that's all on Bill Self. And I definitely think Kansas is back. I think they have <clears throat> a great opportunity to win the championship. Obviously, they have to go through what people are probably perceiving as the favorite now in Villanova. We'll get to that game and them a little bit. But just want to commend Kansas for how well they rebound from a rough start early on in the year. They grew as a team and trusted the process. Shout out to Kansas alum, even though he didn't graduate, he played there, Joel Embiid. But hats off to Kansas on how well they matured, progressed, and came together as a team to make the Final Four. Also, another note on Duke before we move on to some other games. Um, coming in today, some breaking news. Jeff Capel, the recruiting expert for Duke probably got a lot of guys to come to Duke is now the head coach of Pittsburgh the Panthers they got a new coach oh boy controversy has sort of followed Capel everywhere he's gone he was at Oklahoma got them in some trouble with the NCAA left and while he was at Duke the decision to make some sanctions take away some scholarships everything like that did happen at Oklahoma then, Duke, obviously Duke, it's a great program. You're going to get big recruits, but how well they've done in the past couple years, it raises some questions just because of Capel's past. Obviously, you, you can assume that maybe there is some money being exchanged between recruits and the University of Duke and everything like that, but you can also just say, hey, this is Duke. 
They are always in contention every year. They always have a chance to win a national championship. It's a prestigious university. It's all of that. The fans, the history, the tradition, it's there. Why not go to Duke? But just some questionable things going on, and maybe it could happen where he leaves, gets out of that whole situation, and stuff starts popping off for Duke. They start getting named in investigations and recruiting violations and scandal. Maybe. I don't know. I just think... It's something to keep an eye on as Capel now goes to Pittsburgh. And it also helps so many other teams around the country, like Kentucky, like a Arizona, like a North Carolina. Just big programs that are always in contention for big recruits. It helps them so much because it's going to take a lot of rebuilding to even convince okay recruits, I feel like, to go to Pittsburgh Obviously, Duke is still going to be a factor, but Capel was a big reason they were getting these highly touted recruits. Now that he's gone, I don't think there's a huge drop-off for Duke, but I definitely think there is a drop-off for Duke in recruiting, which allows other big programs, which will be in the mix for big recruits, to start ending up getting these guys again like they had been. Now, after all that talk, we move on to another Elite Eight game, which pitted the third-ranked Texas Tech Red Raiders going up against Villanova, the one seed. Villanova wins it 71-59. It was pretty much in control, the game was, by Villanova all the way. Jalen Brunson, uh, 36 minutes, 15 points. Uh, Bridges, 30 minutes, 12 points. Uh, Spielman, the forward for them, 11 points with a lot of hustle plays that aren't really going to show up in the uh, box score. And then Pascal, 37 minutes, played the most out of everybody. He had 14 rebounds and 12 points. Solid game from him. And then DiVincenzo, DiVincenzo, I'm sorry about that. He's been a really big Big guy off the bench for Villanova this entire tournament. He gives them 26 good minutes and 12 points off the bench. Villanova right now is playing the best basketball I think they've played all year. They're getting guys. They're getting guys in position where they are going to have success. If that makes, they're not forcing any type of shots. They're not rushing to have bad possessions. They're doing. What they know is going to work over and over again and just having their way with teams, it sort of feels like. Texas Tech came out, their leading scorer, Keenan Evans, all year, only 12 points. He led them in scoring for this game, so you obviously know they're going to be in trouble with that. Villanova has been hitting shots all tournament as well. Jalen Brunson, a junior leader as well, has played in big games, i.e. the national championship game two years ago when they won it. Obviously, they've been there for Jay Wright has this team playing with confidence. He's coaching with confidence as he has in the past. It's just going to be hard, I think, for Kansas to end up beating Villanova, but we'll talk about that game in a second. I want to talk about the other matchup that took place in the Elite Eight uh, Michigan and Florida State is one that you need to talk about. Charles Matthews is the leading scorer for the Wolverines. The Kentucky transfer has come a long way since his time at Kentucky to being a vocal point for the Michigan Wolverines. Then you also have to talk about Mo Wagner. He is such a matchup problem, and I really wish I could hate him because he goes to Michigan, and I wish I didn't like them as much, but... I just do. I like the way he plays. 25 minutes, which is going to be a problem. He's got to get out of foul trouble if 
they're going to be able to exploit their size against Loyola Chicago in the Final Four. Talk about that. But he's had some foul trouble in the NCAA tournament, in the Big, Big Ten tournament. Other players have stepped up. Um, their other center, uh, Taziki Teske, Teske, excuse me, I apologize, has stepped up and played well, provided good minutes off the bench. But we just have to, he has, Wagner has to realize when to challenge and when not to challenge uh, layups and other things because he's got to stay out of foul trouble. He had 12 points on the day. Um, Rackpar, the is probably a guard. He is is a guard for Michigan, but he's probably one of the most slept-on players in the Big Ten all year as he was, and he's just continued to perform well. He only had nine points in this, but four rebounds, two assists, just a lot of good ball play that he does that goes unnoticed just because of other players on the team like a a Wagner, like a Charles Matthews. And then uh, Poole, the guard for them that hit the game-winning shot against uh, Houston. What did he do today? Only two minutes. Zero points. He's good freshman. He's good. A little hectic at times, but if he can get going, which in the past in this tournament shows he has, he's dangerous and adds another scoring weapon for Michigan, which is deadly. There was a bit of controversy at this end of the game, though. Um, it was 58-54, and Florida State just didn't foul at the end of the game. I don't necessarily understand why. That's a coaching strategy. That's a coach's thing. I don't know if... That's how we wanted it to go down, but maybe you think that since Michigan players are expecting to get fouled, they they freak out a little bit and they just make a mistake and you get the ball. I don't know. Maybe the coach had some money on the game. It was four and a half to spread and they beat it, whatever. I don't know, but questionable decision there by Florida State's coach. And then the other game in the lead eight that we need to talk about, Loyola Chicago, the 11 seed, Sister Jean, the Cinderella story, the slippers continue to fit for them all the way to San Antonio, beats the ninth seeded Kansas State Wildcats after they upset the Kentucky Wildcats in the Sweet 16. Ben Richardson for Loyola, they has, he has 23 points uh, on 7 of 10 field goal shooting, so he propelled them to a win in this game. The Loyola is a bit of a smaller team, but they use their size in very unique ways. They use their speed as well. They can stretch the floor. Their speed is what has propelled them, I think, this far because they play so up-tempo, they get up a lot of shots, and now they're really playing with house money. They have nothing to lose. They Obviously, when you start getting there this close to and you to the national championship and the Final Four, and you realize, hey, we're winning games, we're progressing. You're obviously mindset is, hey, we could win this thing. Let's win this thing. We're going to win this thing. If you told them at the start of the year they'd be in this position, I doubt any of them would believe that. Obviously, they beat Florida early on in the year very handedly, but some people would say that was a fluke win. Obviously, now we know more than likely wasn't. This is a good team, but they're playing with house money. They have nothing to lose everything to gain. So that's a dangerous team. It really, really is. So now just some quick previews for this Final Four, and I'll give my predictions. I think the Cinderella story for Loyola Chicago could easily come to an end in this game. If Michigan plays the way it's played since the Big Ten tournament, I think Michigan ends up in the national title game. Loyola Chicago has been a great story. Sister Jean, God love her. 
She's, I don't think she should be able to come to the games. If you pick your own team to lose in the Sweet 16 and you're kind of the face of that team now and you've won over an entire nation, possibly the entire world, but you pick your own team to lose, heck no. Yeah, I said heck no because she's a sister. She's a woman of Christ. So heck no, you don't get to go to these games. But hey, they're embracing it. They're not holding a grudge. That's totally fine. I get that. But I just think Michigan's size is going to be a problem. I don't think <clears throat> Lola Chicago has faced a team with the size that Michigan has with their depth at the positions and how athletic the big men are where they can stretch the floor a little bit. But Lola Chicago, if they can speed up the game and make Michigan and Beeline take out the big men because they need to play a smaller, faster lineup, then they're playing right into Loyola's hands. And that's the type of game where if they can do that, Loyola will win the game. If they can get Michigan to play fast tempo and a smaller lineup, I'm all in on Loyola. Do I think that's a possibility? No. But it, I think it's easier for Loyola to do that than for Michigan to try and do what they need to do, yes, because you get uh, Wagner in foul trouble, he's out, and then you get the backup center in, who's a little bit leaner, a little bit quicker, I feel like, but still not as fast as Loyola's big men need to be and can be, so it's obviously a contrasting styles, but I just think Michigan puts an end to the run of Loyola Chicago, but... I'm not trying to double down here. I'm really not. But if Loyola is going to win, they need to do what I said. Speed up the game. Get in a smaller lineup for Michigan. And it's much easier for them to do that than it could be for Michigan to just impose their will down low. But I just think Michigan ends up doing it. And I think Charles Matthews has a big game. And uh, Akbar, That's not Akbar. I apologize. I think... It's Rockman, not Akbar. I apologize. I think he has a big game in this one and propels Michigan to the national championship game. Now we float to the other side of the bracket where two one seeds go up against each other, Kansas and Villanova. These teams, statistic-wise, are almost identical. 81 points per game for Kansas, 86 for Villanova. Everything else fairly close. The only other thing that is a Big differential here is the points against that they give up per game. Kansas is at 74. Villanova is at 64. That's 10 points right there if you can't do the math. If you can, good for you. Hats off to you. You pass basic math. 10 points is obviously a lot in close games, and it can always just... Villanova's defense has always been good throughout the year, but I think more so in the NCAA tournament, they've stepped it up and shown, hey, yes, we can score, we're good players, but obviously no one really thought we were this good defensively, but they proved throughout this tournament they have been. Players for Kansas that can obviously make or break this game is Devontae Graham, the guard, the leader of this team, 17 points per game, um... Gets to the free throw line a lot, but in the uh, Duke game showed, hey, I can step out, hit some threes, is a good facilitator as well. So he's going to have to have a big game for them to win. He also dishes out seven assists per game, so he likes to get other guys involved, obviously. Another guy that's going to have to have a big game, he fouled out in the Duke game, is Azubuki. 
he is much more athletic than I had thought he was going to be. Obviously, I've seen the game, but I didn't see the whole feats of athleticism and how really imposing he has been as he was in the Duke game when they needed him to be getting Carter in foul trouble, as I said, and playing good defense. He's averaging seven rebounds a game, gives you some good offensive stability down low. Um, that's going to be very important against Spielman, uh, Villanova's forward. He has been so good for them all year. And then the big story, the big player, maybe player of the year in the country for college basketball this year, Jalen Brunson, 19 points a game, shoots the ball very well, gets to the rim very well, facilitates as well. I mean, he's got four assists per game that he's been averaging. So, And he averages 31 minutes, so he's out there a bunch and is a coach on the court as well, and you love to see that. I just think Villanova has too much in this game. I want Kansas to win, but I just think Villanova has too much uh, firepower and offensive, uh, firepower and defensive stoppage ability. So I'm going to move Villanova on, and that's where Michigan plays Villanova in the national championship game, and break that down here for you real quick. I think these two teams are extremely similar, um, Villanova and Michigan, talking about the national title game. They're very similar, but I think that Villanova is just a better version of Michigan. Uh, Beeline has had Michigan playing so well. He's the hottest coach right now, and some people are saying he's becoming the coach of March for the past couple of years, and I he has been. He has his teams playing well in March. He gets them to go on runs. I like what they have going on. If they're going to win the game, Charles Matthews is going to have to big, have two big games in the Final Four and then in the National Championship game because he's a matchup problem. And then Wagner is going to have to stay out of foul trouble as well. But if they do that, they are going to give Villanova a very, very good game. And Poole off the bench is going to have to come in. He is kind of like a Nick Young for them. When he is on, he is on, adds a whole new element to that offense, the way he can stretch the floor with his three-point shooting and then get guys in there on pump fakes and drive and dish as well. He's a freshman, so it's, 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 I think it's a real matter of confidence with him. If he sees a couple of balls go through the hoop, he's going to get confidence and just play like Swaggy P does, and that's dangerous if they get him going. I'd like for him to maybe be an X-factor as well off the bench if given the opportunity to play in the national championship game. On the other side, I think Brunson is going to just shine. He is such a good player and not really talked about as well, but he is so, so good for Villanova. And Jay Wright finds so many ways to get him the ball, whether he's a bit of a bigger guard so he can post up smaller guards, he can shoot the ball well and drive as well as anybody in the country. And then another guy I haven't really mentioned for Villanova but deserves a ton of credit for how well Villanova's played is Mikel Bridges. 17 points a game, 5 rebounds a game, an assist a game. He's a junior. He's 6'6". He's a big guard for them. He plays so well in the offense and pairs with Bridges so well. That's why I think if, if they win, I think Brunson and Bridges have huge games and they just take over and propel these guys Villanova that is to a national championship like I said I think they're both kind of very similar teams but I think Villanova is the better um, team out of those two so I'm going to take Villanova 
if my heart was in it and I wanted any of these four teams to win, I guess I would say probably Kansas or Michigan, just because I like them. I guess I, Michigan has cool jerseys. Uh, Pool, it's he's a son of a bitch to play against, and Matthews and Wagner, they're sons of bitches to play against as an Ohio State fan. But otherwise, I they're good players. I like them. They're confident players. Um, Devontae Graham for Kansas, I like him. I like how Bill Self, um, 10 years later, where he won his first national championship with Kansas, could come around, make a good story, and win another one in San Antonio. Um, Devontae Graham as well. Azabuki, I like how he plays. Uh, Malik Newman transferring from uh, Mississippi State to Kansas, where I most people think he should have been all along. That would be a great story because he's played very well. Vic hit a big three late in the game against Duke uh, to help propel Kansas to win in that. He could be a storyline in the Final Four as well. Just so many storylines along the way. But if I had to root for teams, um, not analytically speaking, I would pick Michigan and Kansas. And I would want Kansas to win it all. But... Obviously, America's team right now, if you don't have a dog in the fight, is Loyola Chicago. I'd be, I'm fine with any of these teams winning, um, but right now, heart-wise, I'd have to say Kansas, but analytic-wise, I'm going with Villanova. Just to close out the NCAA tournament talk and the year that was in college basketball, it was a great year. Something that I know is going to be very, not, not controversial, because nobody's going to be like, oh my gosh, he... This kid in, from Lexington and Louisville, Kentucky is talking. This is going to totally change how college basketball is. But just my opinion, I think we as fans are so caught up in March Madness and the tradition how it has been for so long and how it's been implemented for so long, how what the BCS was in, in college football. We don't always get the best teams playing for the national championship we don't and I get that is part of the process where any team any game can come out and beat another team just look at Virginia and Baltimore County no one thought UMBC was going to win that game but they end up doing it was Virginia the best team in the country all year arguably they were definitely I think one of the best four teams in the country well I mean they were the number one overall seat thought to go to the final four Certain things like this do upset me a little bit because we're not going to get to see a team like Virginia go up against a team like Villanova, where it would be a great game. We don't get to see Virginia go up against Michigan, a good game. We don't see um, Duke versus a other team like a... I'm trying to think here. Like a Gonzaga or whatever. The best teams always aren't winning. And... I just think maybe we all as fans are a little caught up in just how it has been for the NCAA tournament. And I am I love the NCAA tournament. How could you not as a sports fan? It's the most exciting month, arguably, in all of sports. But there are just some downfalls to the tournament is what I'm trying to say. That's pretty much what I'm trying to summarize this all as. There are downfalls in the NCAA tournament, but... Overall, the good outweighs the bad so much, but just my little gripe about the NCAA tournament a little bit. Then I also want to discuss all the NIT rule changes. Some of them are good, most of them pretty bad. 
what if we just implemented a six foul in college basketball? I think it would improve games, especially for players where, and fans, but players where they can play a little bit looser, a little bit freer. Um, they're going to be able to play more. Their better players will be in game, so you'll get the highest competition with the best players throughout the game, most of all. It'll speed up the game because you can up the ante for how many fouls it takes to get in the bonus, the double bonus, and it'll certainly make the game faster paced because free throws and everything on tic-tac fouls where players are getting in the bonus and shooting free throws and one-on-ones and uh, things like that slows the game down. And some people do complain about the pace of play of the game, but that's just nitpicking that. But I like that. Another thing that would come with that is maybe refs would call the game even more um, tighter and more ticky-tacky fouls because, hey, these players are now getting an extra foul. Just a thought maybe that would maybe change the game if they're experimenting with rule changes like they have in the NIT and changing the shot clock from 35 to 30, which has gone over beautifully. I love that rule. Just an idea. Um, overall, the NCAA basketball season this entire year fantastic loved it from a fan perspective um out of my two teams ohio state and um kentucky didn't turn out how we wanted to but great years for the buckeyes they're back kentucky overcoming so many challenges throughout the regular season um to do what they did in the tournament and win the sec and come together shows how cal really just trusts his system because he's got it figured out and then as a whole the great players a jalen brunson a marvin bagley a colin sexton a deandre ayton a kate uh Bates Diop for Ohio State. So many great players that got to showcase their talents all year. I cannot wait for this Final Four. I'll talk about the Final Four in the NCAA Championship game next podcast, but good golly, what a hell of a season it has been so far. Breaking news now into the podcast. Chris Mack, the Xavier head coach, has now accepted a seven-year deal to be the Louisville Cardinals' next head coach. David Padgett did a great job, I feel like, Handling the situation he was given as a coach this year for the Cardinals. They don't renew his contract. He steps down. Chris Mack, a great hire for the Cardinals, has done so well at Xavier. He could have stayed there and had and been in contention for national championships just as well as he's going to at UofL, but don't fault him at all, especially when they're throwing seven years at you. And those seven years probably come with a huge payday, so a great hire for the Cardinals and Cards fans. Big, big positive for you. Bill Murray could be in the stands for your game, so you got that going for you, which which is nice. Uh, now I want to switch gears and talk about some NFL free agency and news. The big winners so far, most people are saying, of the NFL free agency have to be the Browns, who still have the 1-4 and four pick in the NFL draft, which we'll talk about, but they tr- get Tyrod Taylor in a trade. They get Jarvis Landry, and they get some other pieces as well, and now people are kind of pushing for, hey, Jarvis Landry at least is, maybe go out. Odell Beckham is on the trading block. So many teams are going to be after him if he is available and the Giants are willing to trade him. Odell does say, hey, I'm not playing no matter for who it is if I don't get a new contract. And we've seen players in his draft class 
with Mike Evans get these huge contracts, which Odell definitely deserves because he is one of, if not the best, receivers in the league, if not player in the league. There is some off-the-field issues, and yes, those need to be addressed. Those need to be handled. But what bothers me a lot with Odell and the people around him that criticize him um, for how passionate he is about the game, 20, 30 years ago, it's thought of, that's great. How passionate it is, how much he hates to lose. But now it's just so controversial and people frown upon it, and I just don't get that. I guess that's, as a society, how we've become, but I just totally don't get that. Jarvis Lane, do I think the Browns are going to end up getting Odell? Holy shit, if they do, that receiving core is amazing. Josh Gordon, who comes back um, last year and has a very productive rest of his season, and then Jarvis Landry, who is a great player in his own right, and then Odell? Good God, that would be insane. So the Browns right now are winning, most people say, the free agency. And Dominican Sue, another big name on the move. He is going to the Rams. He had um, entertained some other offers like the Raiders and other teams like that, but probably now the best two nose guards, defensive tackles of the past uh, 10 years. They're now on the same team. Aaron Donald is a beast. So good. It's one of the most underrated players in the NFL. And then Dominican Sue, who... Suhu, Sinuluhu, and Dominican Su. There are times when he takes plays off, he's not interested, but when he does play hard, he's one of the best defensive players in the NFL. If he can get motivated, which I think now that he'll be playing for a contender like the Rams, he will be motivated. I think those guys are going to wreak havoc in the NFC West and just the entire. NFL League. The Rams also signed Aqib Tlaib um, and Marcus Peters, so they secure two great guys in their secondary. Um, they did get rid of uh, Ogletree, who was a great linebacker for them, set the tone and was a leader, but it's kind of out your sacrifice. Maybe you go out and you get um, a rookie linebacker who can come in and fill those shoes, but the Rams right now, if the Browns aren't winning the NFL free agency offseason right now, then it's definitely the Rams because of the moves they have made. Shifting gears now as well, we talked about Odell wanting to get paid. We also now are going to talk about Le'Veon Bell, who should have gotten way more than he did. He gets franchise tagged $14 million. Obviously, you can't really complain about $14 million. I mean, you can, but what type of person would you be? He is complaining about, though, and I 100% agree with him. He's the best running back in the league, and right up there with, in the conversation, his best player in the league. That offense for the Steelers depends on him so much. I don't understand how the Steelers organization in the past couple years just hasn't signed him. Give him all the money in the world. Give him King Midas' gold, whatever that man wants. Let him sign him to a rap deal with Atlantic Records or anything like that. I Death Row Records. I don't care. Let him do whatever he wants besides smoking weed so he doesn't get suspended. Let that man get his money, record his rap, everything. Just let him do it because the impact he has on that team and how dynamic of a player he is and how much he means to that team is way more than what $14 million is worth. A little bit later than what they should have, but still, hats off to them for addressing it. Then, big news out of Indianapolis. Andrew Luck is throwing the football again, and he proved he was one of the best quarterbacks in the league when healthy and he can do his thing. They 
they need him back in the worst way. And if he can get healthy, that team automatically becomes a contender in the AFC South. Maybe not overall in the AFC, but no reason for them not to be able to win the AFC South. So good news for Andrew Luck. And then one other thing I just need to touch on, and we'll be done with NFL Talk. Johnny Manziel. Had a football for two years. It's his comeback season now. He's getting a chance to throw at the Texas A&M Pro Day here recently. Um, had some issues off the field with mental health and other addictions. Was he controversial and is he still controversial? Yes. Should you root against somebody for trying to get his life together and do what he ultimately does love for a living um, playing football? No. You shouldn't root against anybody like that who addresses a mental health issue, which is so difficult to do, to admit you have a problem, um, to address an addiction issue, which, again, so difficult to admit you have a problem. I'm rooting for him. I'm not saying you have to root for him at all, but don't root against the guy is what I'm pretty much saying. So hopefully all the best comes for Johnny Menzel. He has stated he'll play in the CFL if the NFL doesn't become interested. If he can go and perform well in the CFL, it's been shown with Kurt Warner that players can do that and come to the NFL and have success. Do I think Johnny is going to be on the same level as Kurt Warner? Obviously not right off the bat. Could he be? Yes, maybe. Who knows, honestly. But it's just nice to see somebody who did make those mistakes, owning up to his mistakes, and trying to change his life around. Now, just to transition a little bit more with the NFL talk, the draft is a mere month away. I absolutely hate draft coverage. It is the most boring, opinionated time for analysis of football. No one knows what these kids coming out of college are going to be like in the NFL. Is there indicators for how they could be yes but is there any way to surefire know if a team is going to be able to take their next franchise player no no way to tell just to run down some things some notes obviously the draft is quarterback heavy the teams in the top five all are teams that certainly could use a quarterback the broncos are sitting at five they added case keenum though so is is their quarterback situation solved? Who knows? The Browns are at one. They signed Tyrod Taylor in the offseason. Do they need to sign a quarterback, draft a quarterback? I personally don't think they should. Keep Tyrod. You have uh, you just signed Drew Stanton, who was a great backup in Arizona. When Carson Palmer got, he would come in, keep teams, the Cardinals, where they played for, in games, keep them there. Do not draft a quarterback, and if you do, make it uh, Baker Mayfield. Do not take Darnold. Do not take Josh Allen. If you if you don't take Baker, please take Josh Allen. But stay away from Darnold and stay away from Rosen. I just don't think they're gonna pan out. Or if you want to wait, fuck, take Lamar Jackson. That'd be a hell of a thing right there. Uh, probably one of the best athletes in the whole draft. Take him. But I could see the Browns messing up and taking a rookie quarterback. Tyrod having two or three bad games, them feeling pressured to play their first or fourth uh, overall pick that they took with a quarterback, and him not be ready, and just really create a shit show, dumpster fire that has been known as Cleveland football, Cleveland Brown football for the past 10, 15, 20 years. They shouldn't do that. If the Browns don't take Saquon Barkley in this, even though they did sign Carlos Hyde in the offseason as well, they're idiots. 
probably the best athlete in the draft and best player, I truly believe that, Saquon Barkley. You can pair him up with Carlos Hyde. Don't put Saquon on a pitch count um, for how many times he can touch the ball, but you can add years to his career and keep him in your organization and a vital part of your team for so much longer. If you have Carlos Hyde, you have uh, Saquon, you can use Saquon a lot, a little, and add years to his career by not taking all the hits that if he goes to another team, maybe like the Giants, he's going to get the ball maybe 20, 25, 30 times a game, and that can shorten careers by how many hits you're taking. Then take a defensive lineman. Take an offensive lineman. I don't give a shit. Just don't take a quarterback, Browns. That's all I can say. There's so many other things I could dive into with the NFL draft, but it's 28 days away, and I'm certainly not going to cover it like ESPN or Fox Sports covers it. Will I get into probably a first-round mock draft, sleepers in the draft thing? Yeah, I probably will. I The past two years have either periscoped or um, rabbled the NFL draft. I'll probably either do a big segment on the NFL draft on this podcast or end up periscoping it again just because I truly do enjoy that but I'm certainly like I said not going to try and do what ESPN does for their draft coverage because I absolutely hate it absolutely but I just want to throw my two cents in a little bit on that with it only being a month away but now we are going to transition into the NBA and talk about the potential NBA playoffs matchups we're going to look at the Eastern Conference first and Right now, the Raptors are in first place, and you might think of the Raptors as being um, an afterthought in the East as Cleveland has been so dominant, but the Raptors have almost the same number of wins as the Warriors this entire year, and the Warriors are thought of as this empire that untouchable, not beatable really, so great, but the Raptors are there, and there is some concern with Boston and Cleveland. Kyrie, his knee issue for the Celtics. And then uh, Cleveland sort of coming together, relying maybe a little bit too much on LeBron. Could be an issue, but the Raptors right now, one seed is what they're projecting, what they'll probably get in the East. And that's big because it's going to make teams have to come through. Uh, the six, Drake will probably be there. He's a trash hawker, but just a big thing to think about how far DeMar DeRozan has come as a player and pro- propelled the Raptors to the one seed in the East. The Celtics right now are the two seed, but injuries to Marcus Smart. This is a list of mostly their best players. Marcus Smart, Kyrie Irvin, Daniel Thies, Jalen Brown, and Marcus Morris. They're all injured, and Smart Marcus Smart is a good player. He's been absent since May. Don't know when Kyrie is going to be 100%. After his knee surgery, um, Terry Rozier stepped up, played well, but if you don't have Kyrie Irvin and you're already without Gordon Hayward, who your two best players on the team, they're going to have issues, and they might not even make it past the second round. Right now, they're projected to play the Heat. The Heat have a good, young, athletic team. Uh, Drogic down there for them at the point guard could probably have a field day without Kyrie there, so... 
in a series. Bam Adebayo is down there as well. Kelly Olynyk, the ex-Celtic, who would probably love to get some revenge on his team. Old team, Dwayne Wade, still there. The veteran leadership, he still puts up good numbers. It's going to be a dicey matchup if that's how it ends up for the Heat and the Celtics to play. Then we look at the Cavaliers. They are projected third. Their potential playoff opponent is the Wizards. The Wizards are a good team. <sighs> Played a little bit better without John Wall, which is a little bit of an eye-opening thing because John Wall is their best player, but has some chemistry problems with the team. Cavaliers finally come together, getting Kevin Love back. LeBron playing maybe the best basketball he has his entire career as um, he enters his age of 35. Like the Cavaliers to move to play well and probably be the guys and the teams coming out of the East. Then we have the 76ers. Their most likely playoff opponent is going to be the Pacers. The Sixers, they trusted the process. They're in there as well. I'm not going to break down matchups or anything. I'm just going to talk about the teams from now on that will probably be in there. The Pacers, I like what they do. Um, Oladipo is one of the best players in the league. Um, probably one of the most under-the-radar players, too at times and then the bucks are most likely to face the raptors and the bucks are very good uh Ante Capuco has shown all year Ante Capuco I have trouble with that name I'm sorry Giannis the Greek freak how about that has shown all year after a hot start and racing out to a head start in the MVP race that he's a great player and can be good all year long even without being able having really a outside game so could be a tough matchup for the Raptors against the Bucks, but that is the Eastern Conference really playoff how it's going to shake out so far then we move to the West we have the potential one seed Houston Rockets they are not the potential they are 100% they are going to most likely face the Timberwolves Timberwolves a good young team but without Jimmy Butler I think the Rockets are poised to possibly upset and beat the Warriors it's crazy to call it an upset but the Warriors are still I think thought of as the best team in the NBA but speaking about the Warriors uh Steph Curry has the injury that he had um, a couple years ago that kept him out of the first series of the playoff uh, run that they had where they won the whole NBA Finals championship. Um, his MCL sprain, it's concerning a little bit that it's happened again, but I still just think the Warriors are the obvious, not the obvious favorites, but I think they have to be the favorites coming out of the West. The Trailblazers... They're the, looking to be the third seed. They are going to face the Jazz, who is a good team. Donovan Mitchell, I think, is definitely the rookie of the year. And a very surprising team is the Jazz. But I just think the way uh, Dollar Dame, Damian Lillard, has been playing all year with a. Obviously, he always has a chip on his shoulder, but I really think this year he's shown that he's one of the best point guards in the league. Like he hasn't in the past. I mean, he has, clearly. But I think this year it's really been like, hey, take notice then the thunder they are more than likely to play the trailblazers um but again you can't really say for sure if that does happen though i like okc just because of their big three that they've developed with russell westbrook and paul george and carmelo anthony the spurs if they end up making it good gosh they are not 
the typical Spurs right now. Kawhi Leonard, um, there was a player-only meeting, and the Spurs address his whole injury process. Should he play, should he not? It's just an interesting situation to keep an eye on because he's in his contract year next year, and could he leave? Yes, easily. Does he want to get paid? Yes. And I don't think he's the type of player to be selfish and sit out and be like, no, I'm not going to do that. Like, I'm not going to try and win with this team right now. I'm going to wait next year, ball out and get my money, but maybe I have him pegged all wrong. And then the Timberwolves, um, they would, if they do make it, are going to play the Rockets. Again, I think the Rockets win that one just because James Harden and Chris Paul together um, going into the season, questions. How are they going to be able to do that? There's only one basketball in game. Are they going to be able to share, do well? They have proven how well they can do and has locked up the one seed for them in Houston and so many other players for the Rockets like a Capella has stepped up and played well and then maybe the Pelicans they are possibly an eight seed as well they could sneak in I think Anthony Davis is just obviously one of the best players in the NBA but I just don't think he has enough to beat the Rockets all by himself so that is the NBA playoff wrap-up right now. I'll talk about it a little bit more in later podcasts as it gets going, but right now it's just still a little too muddy to talk about, but it's enough where we're close enough where I can talk about it a little much. So I hope you enjoyed that whole segment. Now we shift to MLB because opening day for Major League Baseball is right around the corner, and I'm just going to kind of break this down pretty quickly, some preseason thoughts and notes. Um, the team I think that's going to win the AL East, the Yankees, they sign uh, Giancarlo Stanton in the offseason, and they get a new manager, Aaron Boone. I'm not really sure why they got rid of uh, Joe Giardi. I guess you don't win a World Series since 2009, and the expectations for them is pretty much World Series or bust every year, but I like them to win the AL East, obviously. Um, the Central, the Indians, they won 102 games last year, but they did lose in the wild card to, uh, not the wild card, um, yeah, to the, in the wild card to the Yankees. Um they lost Carl Santana, who was a big bat for them. They did sign some bats in the offseason. Uh, Corey Kluber fell apart in the playoffs last year for them, but I just think the Central is theirs for the taking. The AL West, the defending World Series champions, the Astros, duh. I just think they get that. Um, they bring in Zach Cozart and Ian Kinsler as well, and they still have Jose Altuve and Justin Verlander there, so obviously I'm going to stay with them. The wild cards, I think the Red Sox, are going to be in this. The Orioles could be there. They were in the mix last year, but I just don't think that's going to be a case. The Angels, they also bring in um, the highly touted uh, pitcher slash uh, bat from over in Japan. I forget his name right now. I apologize about that, but they could be there. But I think the Red Sox adding JT Martinez is going to be big enough for them to win the AL wild card. Switching pace now to the NL, I think the Nationals win the East. It's Bryce Harper's final year in the uh, Washington, D.C., potentially for the Nationals, so I imagine he is going to have a hell of a year. The Central, I think you got to give it to the Cubs. Um, the Cardinals and the Brewers, though, the Brewers were a bit of a surprise last year, um, so just keep an eye on that. The Dodgers, the team that came out of the NL last year, they still have, they won it, excuse me, the Dodgers have won the NL West for five consecutive years, looking to make it six, um, 
I think there's no reason they shouldn't. They bring back a lot of players from last year. And then the wild cards, more than likely going to be the Cardinals and the Mets for the NL. And then the NL champion, I don't I don't know. I feel like it could probably be the Nationals this year just because Strasburg and then um, the way Bryce Harper can play. And then, uh, what is his name? Zimmer. Zimmerman. The way he has pitched also as well for the Nationals, I think it could be a year they put it all together and end up winning the NL, which would set up a Yankees-Nationals World Series, and i take the Yankees in that all day. I just think the Yankees this year are going to be so good. If they can add another piece to the rotation pitching-wise, I think they easily do it. CC Sabathia is the wily veteran. I'm going to lead them on the mound all year, but... Their bats are so good. It's a murderer's row. Um, their pitching can be solid, and if it is, I just think it's the Yankees' year. And that right now is my prediction for MLB. Again, I'll talk more about MLB periodically throughout the uh, podcast coming up, but again, so close to opening day, just need to touch on it a little bit. And now, this is already a long episode, so I'm just going to get to golf and the big news. Tiger Woods is back. He played back-to-back tournaments. Um, He played in Arnold Palmer's uh, tournament. He played in the Valspar uh, Championship and was competitive in both. He has shot up to the top of the odds for best chance to win the Masters. The Masters is rapidly approaching. It's the first weekend in April. Uh, Going to be a hell of a time. Is Tiger Woods back? I think he is. I think he's playing some of the best golf he's played in years. I think he's developed a good schedule and a good routine where he doesn't want to um, over-exude himself, but he does need to play more consistently to stay uh, competitive and be not show rust and everything. When he does miss, they're not huge misses. Eight, like... If he does hit an air tee shot, it's not a big miss as it has been in the past. It's a bit of a smaller miss. He's playing smart golf as well. He's adjusted his game, and he's not really lost a step. He's got, um, he's driving the ball well, driving the ball far. He's got the fastest head club speed on tour this entire year, 129 miles per hour, faster than uh, Justin Thomas, Jordan Spieth, Dustin Johnson, all those guys. So Tiger Woods is back. I'm officially saying it. He has been now for a while. I hope he does end up winning the Masters, but I'll give you a Masters breakdown a little on. Just need to touch on the golf a little bit because that has been a big story. Um, And he's also brought so many eyes back to the game of golf and ratings-wise. But like I said, just need to touch on that because it has been such a big story in the entire sports world of Tiger Woods being back. Okay, that's it. That's the end of Carson Sack, episode 34. Bear with me on the drought that it was so long for me not putting out a podcast, but hearing feedback from people that listen to this, I really do appreciate it. Having people come up to me at bars or social events and saying, hey, I listen to your podcast. I like it. It's good. It means the absolute world to me. So thank you so much for doing that. Like, rate, review, subscribe. Obviously, the same old, same old on iTunes. Said it once said it before and I'll say it again. This podcast is the best podcast by a college student in America. And I continue to do it because I love doing it. It's what I want to do with my life. But hearing feedback from people that tell me how good it is, just random people too, how good it is and how much they enjoy it, it means 
so much to me. So thank you so much. There will be more episodes coming here soon. Thank you for all the continued support. And with that, as we say, always in closing here on Carson Sack Podcast where we talk balls, we will be seeing you.